This is Archive Atlanta, Episode 3, Downtown Hotels, Part 1. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey guys, happy Friday. I am coming to you live from my daughter's spaceship tent at my parents' house. I wish I could show you a photo of this and I may just take a video so you can see this, but um, the only quiet time I can actually find to record this podcast is when my daughter is not in the house or sleeping. And so single motherhood 101, it's hard to find either of those times. So my parents just took her to a farm down the street and I am in a toddler playhouse. So anyway, I had to express that because I am laughing at myself right now. So today's episode is going to be all about downtown Atlanta hotels, and I know that there are lots of hotels in Atlanta, so my plan here is that we're going to tackle this in a few parts, definitely part one and part two, maybe even a part three if we're feeling a little crazy about it, and I've chosen two that I want to focus on and both have really interesting stories. So one is a deadly fire, and some of you may already have heard this one before, but the second one involves a landmark Supreme Court case that's a little bit more unknown. We begin our first story at current day 176 Peachtree Street. And this is what I call the touristy part of Peachtree. So you have the Hard Rock down there and Hooters and the Peachtree Marta Station. And when I run down there, I always feel like I'm in a real city and that's not trying to be a diss, but in the sense that there's always constant movement and activity the same way that I feel like is in New York City or places like Chicago. There's just always something to see down there and always people going to work or going to lunch or going somewhere. And so it's one of my favorite parts of Atlanta. Now, if you go to that address right now, you're, you're going to see the Ellis Hotel. But what you may not know is that the Ellis Hotel was originally opened as the Weinkauf Hotel. In 1913, when it was built, it was named after William Weinkauf, who was basically the man with the money. So he built it. They named it after him. And at that time, it was one of the tallest buildings in Atlanta, which was a whopping 13 stories high. Just to give you some comparison, our current tallest building is the Bank of America Plaza, which I'm pretty sure is at 50 stories. So 15 was a big deal back then. It was designed by William Stoddart, who also designed the Georgian Terrace, which was a very fancy hotel across the street from the Fox Theater that is, amazingly, still there. Now, fast forward 33 years. So the year is 1946, and it's December in downtown Atlanta, and basically that Christmas magic spirit is throughout the city. Everyone's hustling and bustling, they're getting things done, there's a little bit of magic in the air. Almost every single room in the Weinkauf is booked, and the guests are all there for several different reasons. There's three main reasons that I'm going to talk about. So many were in Atlanta to do their holiday shopping, which in our current Amazon Prime world seems really hard to imagine. But I grew up in a small town, and I understand completely where you had to leave to get anything remotely unique. I mean, growing up, if you wanted a shirt... It was a 25-minute drive to the mall. So people were basically doing the same thing. If you lived in South Georgia or even just right outside of Atlanta, you would get a hotel for the weekend, do your Christmas shopping, maybe see some sights. And so we had people staying at the Weinkauf from as far away as Thomaston, Georgia, which is quite the drive, or even Fairburn, which really isn't that far away for our current world. But again, they would spend the weekend in Atlanta. So secondly, you had people in town getting medical procedures done. And this isn't 
isn't as commonplace today, but in rural towns of Georgia, you just kind of had a general practitioner, and if you needed something a little more complicated or maybe a surgery, you would have to go to Atlanta to get that done. So there were people also staying in the hotel that weekend that were getting some medical stuff done, but probably enjoying some of that Christmas spirit and doing their shopping as well. Now, the last group of people that descended on downtown Atlanta that day were children. They were actually here from all around the state to participate in the youth assembly, which was going on at the Capitol, that was put on by the YMCA. So a bunch of young Christian kids from around the state, um, all in downtown Atlanta. Now, what none of the 304 guests at the hotel knew that that night, at 3.15 in the morning, the Weinkauf would go up in flames and claim the title of the deadliest hotel fire in U.S. history. When the hotel was built, it was touted as being absolutely fireproof, which was a total misnomer, sort of how the Titanic was unsinkable. And from an insurance perspective, it was fireproof in the sense that if the building caught fire, the base structure would remain and not need rebuilding. But everything inside is flammable. So mattresses, linens, towels, carpets, curtains, wall coverings, all of that catches fire really quickly. And what the Weinkauf did not have was a sprinkler system, fire alarms, or fire doors. And on top of that, it had one single stairway that served the entire building. The hotel was built based on the Atlanta Building Code of 1911, which didn't require any of this stuff. And even though this is 1946 and building codes had definitely changed over 33 years, it was thought at the time to be intrusive and overreaching to require a building to retrofit to adopt to the current rules. The bellboy noticed the flames and ran downstairs to tell the concierge who started calling the rooms. Again, there's no fire alarm, so the man had to pick up the phone and try to call each individual room. You can only imagine how effective that was, which is not at all. Very quickly, many of the guests would see flames, feel heat, or smell the smoke, and they were all trapped. Fire Station 8 was just 800 feet down the road. So fire trucks arrived within a minute, yet as firemen pulled up to the scene, there were already people jumping. They actually had firemen that were injured by falling bodies. Now let me go completely just off tangent for a second here. I'm recording this episode just a few days after the 17th anniversary of 9-11, and I was in New York City that day. I was in college. And we had sat down to start our class, and this is before anybody really knew what was happening. What I didn't know is that one of our classmates actually commuted to school, and her train um, let out right underneath the World Trade Center. So that morning, she took the train, got out, left the train, walked outside, and people were jumping and falling right in front of her. I have no idea how she made it to school. I think she was in a severe state of shock, but she had made it to class, and I will never forget the look on her face. She was completely traumatized, completely in a state of shock. The teacher took her out, and by then everybody understood what was going on, and we just scattered and went down the block to watch everything, try to call her parents. This is the days, I I don't think I had a cell phone or cell phones didn't work. But living through that made me think about this Weinkauf story even further, because I can't imagine the desperation of someone to think that jumping is your only hope, but then also the people that are witnessing this, how much that traumatizes them for the rest of their lives when they weren't even really directly involved in the tragedy. Of those 304 guests at the Weinkauf, 119 died. 65 were injured, 
And of the 119, 32 people died from jumping or falling. So a lot of people try to take bed sheets, tie them in knots, and make ropes, but none of those worked. The hotel builder that I mentioned earlier, he actually continued living in the hotel after he sold it. So he sold it in 1915 and just lived there in his wife up in the higher suites. He died in his room and his wife died on the sidewalk of Petrie Street right in front of the hotel. There's another guest story about Margaret Nichols and her boyfriend, Jack. Uh, Jack owned the nightclub next door, so very often he'd close up late. He kind of had, from what I read, sort of like a permanent reservation where he could get a room whenever he wanted. So they got a room for the night, and they were in there when the fire broke out. The smoke in their room was so thick that Jack thought the only option was to jump across an alleyway, and he thought he was going to jump 10 feet, break a window with his fist, and latch on. And now this is where I can try to explain. Right behind the Weinkauf was a building called the Mortgage Guarantee Building. And what happened between two buildings is it created a 10-foot alleyway. So a lot of the people trapped in their rooms looked over and that building looked so close to them. There was a hotel guest that ended up saving tons of lives by running to the next door building, uh, busting out a window, and putting a ladder in between both windows, which a lot of people got out of. But the people that thought they were going to jump to the next building just, it didn't work. And what Jack didn't know was that those windows were reinforced with wire. So the idea that he was even going to break through if he got there was misguided. What's really sad is that Margaret attempted the jump first and fell to her death, but then Jack tried right after and also fell. And there is a fascinating yet weirdly morbid website that has recorded every single victim of the fire. So I have that link in the show notes if you need a rabbit hole to fall into because I was in there for a few hours. It's it's very detailed. So everybody's name, everybody's occupation, why they were at the Weinkauf, and their personal stories. While this fire is raging, in another part of Atlanta, there's a young Georgia Tech student named Arnold Hardy who was coming home from a dance heard the sirens, and decides he's going to call the police department to find out where the fire is. Let's just pause for a second, because that does not happen nowadays. But 1946, they just told him, hey, the Weinkauf is on fire. So he runs down there to the scene, and he uses the last camera flashbulb to capture a photo, and it turns out to be a woman who is mid-fall, so in the mid-air, jumping out of her window. He ends up winning the 1947 Pulitzer Prize for Photography, because of that photo. And the Associated Press actually bought the picture for $300, which in today's money is about $4,000, which is a lot for a college student. Now, the woman's name was Daisy McCumber. She did survive the fall, which is really cool, and died at the ripe old age of 86. So you may be wondering, how did the fire start? And this whole story starts to get a lot more detailed and a lot more complicated when it comes to this. But I will say that there's two camps. Um, at the time, city officials declared that the fire was started by a casually thrown lit cigarette that uh, caught a mattress on fire. And the authors of a book called The Weinkauf Fire, The Untold Story of America's Deadliest Hotel Fire, which I'm also going to link in the show notes, they believe the fire was set by arson. And the arsonist was named Roy McCullough. Now, I will not get into the gritty details of this part, but I suggest that everyone interested in this read that book. My local library had it. It is a wealth of information and a lot about this investigation and sort of the aftermath of the fire and what the people think happened. 
Now, I will say, after reading it, I am siding with the author. So right after the fire, they had seven investigators from around the U.S. come to um, investigate the Wankoff fire, and five of them said it was arson. So I'm agreeing with the authors of the book, but you guys can do your research and also decide what you think. In 1951, so this is about five years later, the hotel was fixed up and reopened as the Peachtree Hotel on Peachtree. Very original name. But it was now equipped with both fire alarms and automated sprinkler systems. The thing that I found uh, this information that blows my mind is the man who survived the Weinkauf fire actually booked a room in the Peachtree Hotel for that night that it opened. And I just don't know if I could have done that, so um, kudos to that guy. By 1967, the hotel had closed, and then the building was donated to the Georgia Baptist Convention as elderly housing. That only lasted for about a decade, and then it was vacant. Now, it was vacant for almost 20 years. After that period, and think about 2007, is when it was purchased, they did an extensive renovation, and they opened it as a boutique luxury hotel, which is what we have now, called the Ellis. And it's named the Ellis because that's actually the little side street that the hotel is on. The fire was historically important because it forced changes in U.S. building codes, but more importantly, it required for there to be ingress and egress for guests and self-closing fire doors. But it basically required there be a way for guests to exit in case of a fire that wasn't just their window. So the next time you're down on Petrie Street, you can impress your friends with this sad and gruesome tale of the Weinkauf fire, or you can pay your respects to these people that died to essentially make our world a safer place because there were um, United States-wide regulations that passed after this rash of fires in 1946. Now I have photos on the website for you guys of the Weinkauf historical photo. I have a current photo of the Ellis Hotel and I also went and took a picture of the little alleyway. It's dark and a little creepy but you can see how small it seemed maybe possible to jump over but remember it was really 10 feet away. So while I have you guys down there at the Ellis Hotel, I want to tell you about another hotel that you can walk over to. And that would be at 225 Cortland Street, which is now the Hilton Atlanta. So unlike the Weinkauf, the hotel that was originally on that spot of land isn't there anymore. So this is a little bit disconnected from the story, but all we have to share is that story. And I think it's important enough to share. And you can at least go down to that spot and, you know, take the picture I give you guys and Imagine what's there. The Heart of Atlanta Motel opened in 1956, so this is about a decade after the Weinkauf fire, and it was touted as one of the finest hotels between New York and Miami. It had 216 rooms, air conditioning, a no-tipping policy, two full-size swimming pools, direct dial telephones, 24-hour switchboards, very fancy seahorse cocktail lounge, and Muzak. Yes, elevator music was an amenity, and they put it on their postcard because it was so popular. And I was looking up on a, on a segue, I was kind of looking up Muzak, and I think it had really come into popularity right around the time that the motel was built. Now, the heart of Atlanta Motel was owned by a local attorney named Morton Rolston Jr. He so happened to be not just an attorney, but a very ardent segregationist. And I know that that is not exactly shocking for a white Southern man in 1956, but he was extra level racist. And I don't know if that's a term, I may have just made it up, but when I say that, I mean he was on less dramatics levels. And actually, the two of them combined forces, which I'm about to tell you about. 
The motel was a frequent target of sit-ins and civil rights demonstrations, as you can imagine. Uh, Morton was very vigilant about blacks not being able to stay at his motel, so it was very much demonstrated in or around throughout the early civil rights movement. He felt so strongly about not allowing black patrons that, get ready for this, when President Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act, the president signed the act at 6.45 p.m. exactly. Now, if you didn't know, Section 2 of the Civil Rights Act is what outlawed discrimination in privately owned hotels, motels, and restaurants. So that was directly going to affect Mr. Rolston. Now, again, 6.45 p.m. At 8.55 p.m., Morton had filed his suit with the clerk of the United States Supreme Court. So yes, he sued the federal government to prevent the integration of his motel. But the best part is yet to come. He asks for $11 million in damages. $1 million is for the deprivation of his property rights, and $10 million for being deprived of what he said were his rights of liberty to refuse service. Now, he wasn't the only one bringing suit in retaliation against Section 2 of the Civil Rights Act. So Lester Maddox was right there next to him. And now, most of the time on my tour, when I say the name Lester Maddox, I get like a knowing groan, an eye roll. But if you don't know who Lester Maddox is, he owned a restaurant in Atlanta, right near Georgia Tech, called the Pickrick. And he opened it in 1947. And the slogan of the Pickrick was, you pick it out, we rick it up. I don't really know what that means, but it was kind of like a southern cafeteria. He used to advertise in the newspaper at the time, and in his advertisement, he would say verbatim, happy white folks in my dining room, happy colored folks in my kitchen. This is not paraphrasing. The man was a crappy individual. Now, they took the Rolston and the Maddox cases, combined them, and tried them together before a three-judge circuit court in Atlanta. And the idea was maybe if you combine the two cases, they would have a better chance of passing. Uh, thankfully, the courts ruled against them and ordered both men to admit black patrons to their establishments within 20 days. Now, Lester decided to close the picric rather than integrate. And this actually earned him admiration with so many white Georgians that he was elected governor in 1966. Let that sink. <laughs> That's going to be its own episode one day. But, I mean, the less dramatic story always blows my mind. Now, a little bonus fact is that the Pickrick was purchased by Georgia Tech right after he closed it. And the building was actually hanging around until 2009 when the university uh, tore it down. And now it's just part of a green space on campus. Rolston, meanwhile decided not to close the motel. He appealed his decision to the Supreme Court, and then this case is historically known as the Heart of Atlanta Motel versus United States. And the Supreme Court unanimously upheld the lower court's decision, which said, you have to integrate. Now, Morton was not happy about that. He believed the decision could lead to, quote, a socialist state and eventual dictatorship, end quote. He said a lot more about this. There's actually historical black and white footage of him talking about his feelings of the decision. It's, it's worth a look, and I will link that as well in the show notes. Now, by 1976, I think it was, the heart of Atlanta Motel was demolished and then replaced with the Hilton that you see today. I have a picture of the current Hilton, but I've also put a picture on the website that shows um, a postcard of the original motel. So again, you guys can just maybe stand there and use your imagination a little bit to see what it might have looked like. This story, comically enough, does not end here. It actually gets better. 
Morton Rolston is sued in a legal malpractice suit um, later on, and in order to satisfy the judgment, they seized his home. So this was 2003. The bank takes his home. By 2005, the bank sells the property for $9 million to, drumroll, Tyler Perry, African-American filmmaker and very wealthy man. So Tyler Perry buys this great property in Buckhead and demolishes the house, and he builds himself a new 30,000-square-foot mansion. And here is where the real fun begins. Morton has a history of small civil suits that have bogged down city courts. There are so many case files you can read about. Honestly, I I couldn't even follow. I think he was just a little bit of a lunatic and he would just sue and appeal. But his main cause was that he did not believe that this property was rightly taken from him. That he should have never lost his house and lost his property. So he had sued Tyler Perry numerous times. And again, saying that the property was wrongly taken from him. And I'm not exaggerating. So I want to read you an excerpt from the 2007 decision to disbar Mr. Rolston from the State Bar of Georgia. And it reads, quote, After repeated disciplinary actions and admonitions from Georgia courts at every level, Rolston has shown no remorse for his actions. To the contrary, he has continued to plague the judicial system with untenable claims for purposes unbefitting of any member of the state's bar, end quote. It went on and on. I just picked a little piece for you guys. But the man was kind of loony. The funny part about this is that Tyler Perry vocally praised his tenacity. He kind of laughed and said, hey, you know what? That's the same drive that got me where I am. But in the same vein, I've read interviews where Tyler Perry has spoken about the poetic justice that he felt buying the home of an ardent segregationist. And I love the whole story. So I think it's, if you believe in divine retribution, this has got to be what it looks like, you know? So a very wealthy African-American millionaire buys a home of this insane racist man and Tears, out, tears down his house and builds a bigger mansion on top. Now, uh, Mr. Perry sold the property in 2016 for $17.5 million, broke records at the time as the most expensive residential sale in Atlanta history. Mr. Rolston is no longer with us. He died in 2013. But like all my stories, you can go see the places I'm talking about and have some connection. And I know it's not the best scenario, as the Hilton replaced the heart of Atlanta, but you can still go down and see the space where this Supreme Court case essentially originated. If you want to see the Tyler Perry mansion, you may need a drone or a tube. (laughs) So the property is on the Chattahoochee, right across from Canoe, the restaurant that's off Paces Ferry. So there's a school there. Um, The entrance to the school is directly across from the gate, and that's the gate that can take you to the property. But I have a feeling that if you were floating down the Chattahoochee, you'd be able to see more of the property. Or you can just Google it, and there's a really good aerial shot as well. So there you have it, the story of the Weinkauf and the story of the Heart of Atlanta Motel. And as always, please share these stories with your friends, family, and heck, even random strangers, because that's what I'm doing right now. These are the places and the people of Atlanta, and knowing this history, for me, is really important because it shapes our future. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe, leave a review, tell your friends about it. Make sure you visit www.archiveatlantapodcast.com, episode 3, for the photos that I'm talking about. But remember, I always love seeing my listener photos, so hashtag Archive Atlanta, and have a great weekend.